Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Literary Studies podcast. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Scott, a host for the channel. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Eric Hayo about his recently published book, Humanist Reason, A History, and Argument, A Plan, published by Columbia University Press earlier this year. Dr. Hayo is Distinguished Professor of Comparative Literature and Asian Studies at Penn State University, where he is also Director of the Center for Humanities and Information. The scope of of Dr. Hayo's work is vast, ranging from East Asian studies to a path-clearing retheorization of literary history in his book On Literary Worlds, to one of my personal favorite books, The Elements of Academic Style, which is a beautifully written overview of academic writing at its best that also provides one of the clearest and most articulate roadmaps to how to think and write in the humanities. Welcome, Dr. Hayo. It's great to have you here. Hey, thanks so much, Brian. Please call me Eric all the time. (laughs) Um, I mean, this is where you know each other. Anyway, so yeah, Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's great to be talking. Of course, yeah, and it's 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 really good. um, You know that that we've been able to do this. Um, So I was hoping um, I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about yourself and and about your your development as a scholar, and also um, so what led to to these current in, interests, um, uh, and specifically this book on on humanist reason. Um, what what led to the book, and what were the impulses? Some of the impulses uh, behind it. Well, I mean, I think in some respects, I'm someone who, first of all, you know, loves the humanities, loves humanistic thinking loves, I think, them so much that I also love thinking about them as acts of doing rather than as simply kind of, uh, I don't know, expressive or or, or professional uh, structures. What I, let me try to unpack that a little bit. I, you know, when I wrote Elements, part of what I was trying to do was to show people, whoever, students, uh, colleagues, the ways in which the writing of research in the humanities functioned and could be taught and thought of as a craft and as a practice. Um, And it seemed to me really important to do that against a kind of model of writing that thought of writing as simply um, the expression of things one had already thought, essentially, or that thought of the act of writing as a a kind of um, attempt to 
engage rhetorically in ways that involve simply um, either manipulating the reader or using the right catchphrases or words um, or doing sort of, quote unquote, the right things, whatever those right things were, in ways that would make one successful. So I, I think part of this comes from a, a kind of commitment, um, intellectual commitment to seeing um, idealized social formations as practices. That is to see, seeing sort of uh, conceptual structures as related to and produced by practices uh, that are um, that are a matter of work of craft in some sense. Uh, one of the philosophers who whose work I really admire, the German philosopher Peter Janisch, uh, has a book called Handwerk und Mundwerk, and and it's you know he he basically it's handwork and mouthwork essentially um, it, to think of mouth work or thought work as work that is not dissimilar to hand work, uh, obviously, you know, located completely different in different spaces in the capitalist system and the social system and so on. But, but to think of them as forms of work and um, because they're, they're forms of work susceptible to craft type instruction and susceptible to um, a kind of delineation and description that makes them feel uh, like something anyone could do uh, felt important to me. So all that to say, you know, I ended up writing elements because uh, I, I wanted to teach people to think about writing that way. In some respects, humanist reason, especially the third part of humanist reason, is the same kind of book. I mean, if, insofar as elements teaches you how to write, um, humanist reason, the third part of humanist reason, is trying to teach you, someone, how to think or in many cases, I guess, how to describe the way you're already thinking in ways that make it easier for you to think that way and make you a more powerful thinker. So part of the goal of the book was to was to really think about the craft of humanist scholarship and the, 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 the mouth work or the thought work of humanist scholarship as a matter of a series of very specific learned practices that we could together as humanists recognize our commitment to and together as humanists teach as expressions of our commitment. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really, really interesting. And, and, you know, obviously extremely, um, extremely, you know, timely and, and important. Um, I want to actually, um, before we get into, to the, the concepts that, that you're outlining, um, specifically humanist reason, I actually, um, kind of for selfish reasons, want to ask you specifically about your voice. Um, uh, and maybe step back for for just for just one moment um before we get in into those um you know more complicated areas. Um but I, I wanna just say that that your voice in writing is always uh very, very um is striking to me. It's strikingly unique. Um it's often very uh, experimental. Um, it's very playful. Um, it often moves uh, from conversational uh, to formal. Um, and in this book, you have self interviews, and and you seem to be really playing with 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 voice and with form and how that um, informs content. Um, and and it actually really it kind of reminded me of of almost like the novelist. David Mitchell, where where there's there's really a playfulness uh, of style um, in your writing, and and I find it really really you know enjoyable and and refreshing to read. Um, so 
I am, I'm wondering about if you could just say something about how you developed uh, your voice as a writer, um, how, you, how you work on that, how you experiment as you're writing, um, uh, how, how much you work on matching formed content and those types of issues, how, how you choose tone and, and style, um, and, and how that works in, in this book uh, specifically. Um, okay. Well, so, I mean, first of all, you know, I, uh, there's a woman named Helen Sword who writes, who has a couple of books about academic writing. And one of the books is an in, a set of interviews with academic writers. And um, she interviews people from all over the academic writing spectrum. So scientists and humanists and, you know, uh, legal scholars and so on and so forth, big, big range. And so she, one of the people she interviewed for this book was me. And one of the questions she um, starts with in the interview is to, to talk to her about all of the formal writing instruction that you've ever had. And so I listed for her and I can list for you later, but uh, uh, all of the writing instruction that I'd had from, you know, uh, you know, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I have taken theater writing and, and, and fiction writing classes. I worked as a journalist uh, uh, extensively when I was younger in college and, um, and, and in high school, I, you know, like I was paid to write for newspapers. Um, and uh, and then I was very lucky in, in uh, you know, I, I, I've been a writing tutor and a writing teacher and, and, and um at the college level and outside college, uh, and, um, and so on. And, and, you know, when I, li- I finished listing all this stuff and she said to me that I'd had more formal writing instruction than any other person she'd interviewed for the book. So I'll say that. So part of it is just that, I mean, which is that I, you know, I love writing. I mean, I became, you know, I became interested. I majored in, in English in college and became interested in literature partly because I love the power that writing has over me um, and over others. And, and I love the way that, you know, good writing makes me feel. And, and so, and I wanted to be a writer um, for a long time. I wanted to be a writer of some kind. And, um, it wasn't really till late in college that I took a class that kind of convinced me that I wanted to be uh, an academic writer. Um, you know, and, and so part of what, you know, made me become a, a professor of literature was the, you know, reading and being moved by and feeling empowered by not just the ideas, but the prose of the work that I was being assigned to read in college. Um, and then obviously eventually in graduate school. So I, you know, I begin with that sense that I'm not, uh, you know, that I, 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 I'm not a scholar in, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I whatever, I'm a scholar in some sort of way, but I, I think of myself really as someone who is making, uh, who's committed to writing and, 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 and who, um, is committed to writing in a very particular way in academia. And, and this is part of what Elements is about which is that I am, I've never been interested with the exception of, I think one piece that I ever published, I've never been interested in kind of a a revolutionary upending or overturning of the styles of academic writing. Um, You know, I, I think genres are good. Um, I, I, I think, I think that structure is useful. And so it's not that, you know, my critique of academic writing is not a critique that says, oh, academic writing is so jargony or boring or stultifying or no one can understand it, or it's show-offy and egotistical and, and, you know, the writers are too anxious and so on. So none of that. And, you know, we shouldn't, can't we go back to the 1950s? Everyone should write like Lionel Trilling, whatever, whatever, right? Like there's, there's some version of that, you know, that fantasy that I just don't have. 
Um, and I also don't have the fantasy of, of um, you know, why can't we write in a completely organized way in the way the scientists write, where you have your abstract and you say very clearly what the impact of your research is and so on and so forth, right? I I love academic writing because it's uh, it's because so much of it is good and powerful. Obviously, some of it's terrible, fine. But what I'm trying to do, therefore, as a writer is to kind of like ratchet open within the framework of academic writing as it more a humanistic writing as it more or less exists in the moment that I'm writing, ratchet slightly wider the aperture through which people can express their voice or through which people can play with language. Um, and, 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 you know, so, so it's not, you know, when, what I'm trying to do, like when I switch registers like that, when I go from conversational to formal or when I, you know, um, very rapidly, like kind of like turn, turn the style. Part of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like push Oh, I don't know. I, I really do think of it as like pushing open the boundaries between things like and and jacking open the space so that there's room to breathe and to move um, intellectually in terms of play. So that there's room for multiple kinds of pleasure. That is, you know, if someone reads my stuff and is, um, you know, likes the ideas, that's great. But also I want them to be moved by the sentences or turned on by like some turn of phrase uh, or I want them to be kind of, I want them to laugh like once, you know, once in the whole book, if they laugh, right. Or if they, or if they, uh, you know, or, or I want there to be those sentences where like at the end of the sentence you read it and you think like, damn, and you just have to like stop and just like be impressed for a little while. I mean, I, I don't know if I pull this off, but that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to do it because I, one of the ways that I think about, um, one of the ways that I think about genre, let's say all genres, is that um, one of the ways that, that genres can be described, not entirely, but partially, uh, in terms of what you might think of as the number of levels of engagement that they activate or the number of types of engagement that they activate. So, for example, in uh, a set of instructions on how to assemble a piece of IKEA furniture, the font in which the instructions are written is not activated in terms of your understanding of the meaning of those instructions. And what's more, the the grammar or the rhythm of the sentence is also not activated. That is to say, you're not supposed to build the furniture differently if you read the sentence in a different rhythm. You're also not supposed to build the furniture differently if you read the sentence in a different language, right? So those, so so what you might think of is is that there's a very limited set of com- potential components of language that are being activated. Whereas, for instance, in a poem, right, there are all sorts of components of language that are being activated. So sound, rhythm, placement of the word on the page, and so on and so forth, right? Metaphor, symbol, yada, 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 right? There's all this kind of stuff. So what you have is in, in the poem is richer and we, and we know this, I mean, I, you know, how do I know these things? I know these things because I'm a student of literature and of genre, right? The poem is it, one of the reasons poems are powerful and Ikea instructions are not powerful emotionally is because poems are able to activate these levels. And the reason we call something poetry is precisely, how do you know something's poetry? You know, it's poetry partly because you know what levels it's activating. Right. And, and that's how, and then, and then that's an incitement to read it in a certain way. So similarly for me, knowing what I know about poetry, knowing what I know about prose, 
it's clear that one of the things you can do in your prose is to activate what I'm describing as these levels or types of, of engagement for the reader, right? Sound, rhythm, sense, but also style, uh, level of formality, uh, humor, non-humor, seriousness, non-seriousness, uh, anger, you know, you can write in a righteous way sometimes, or not righteous description versus uh, analysis, all of those things. And, and what I'm trying to do is to show my reader at the level of my style, some of the things that I'm also trying to talk about, which is to say I'm trying to show the reader the ways in which, in fact, prose can be activated. And partly what I'm hoping is, regardless of whether the reader agrees with me, partly what I'm hoping to do with that work is to open the space for other writers to follow. That is, what I'm hoping to do is to do the same thing for other people that uh, the other writers did for me, which is to have someone read this and think, wow, I didn't know I could do that. Uh, but I'm going to try to do things like that my way. Not I'm not going to try to write like Hayo. Although, frankly, you know, I spent a lot of my early career trying to write like you know Roland Barthes' English translations by Richard Howard or or like Frederick Jameson or like Spivak. So I think there's nothing wrong with trying to write like someone. I think trying to write like someone is a, is a, is a step on a path, often to be, to finding your own voice. But in any case, that's part of what I'm trying to do with all of that stuff is is to is to create room for other people to step into so that they can feel empowered to expand their range, uh, activate more stuff, engage more with with the the literariness of their prose and to take that seriously. And the last thing I'll say about this, but I know I've been going on for a long time, but the last thing I'll say is that this is also for me a critique of the fantasy of pure reason that someone in, for instance, science, but also some people in the humanities have, which is the fantasy that there is a form of communication that doesn't activate those things, or the fantasy that there are forms of, when forms of communication that are supposed to be rational activate those things, they're doing something bad or wrong or dangerous, right? That the very poetics of language is itself a kind of falsification of reason, and therefore to be avoided, which is why you should say things plainly and so everyone can understand and so on and so forth. So my style of writing is also a critique of a certain kind of fantasy of rationality uh, as uh, essentially inhuman, first of all, that is say corresponding to no actually existing humanity. And second of all, because of that historically false, which is to say corresponding to no actual evidence that we have of a human form of existence that has ever complied with the rules that a kind of inhuman prose or fully rationalized prose would fantasize should or could exist. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and I, I really absolutely believe that you, uh, that you achieve those goals, you know, especially for me. Um, it reminds me of, um, you know, there's a, there's something that, that Rob Nixon says in, in his introduction to, um, uh, it's one of his books where he talks about, you know, reading Edward Said for the first time and how that opened up all of these new, you know, possibilities um, and, and kind of changed the way that he thought about, you know, what what academic writing could be, especially, you know, in that kind of like moment of of, of high theory. And then, then someone comes and uh, gives you this really beautiful, um, well-crafted uh, other option or, or other options. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely one of the reasons why, why I really, you know, love reading your work and, and really, really appreciate um, 
you know the style with which uh you write um yeah absolutely um <clears throat> so i guess yeah thank you for that um so i guess we'll we'll get to um kind of kind of the core of the book and i'll, I'll just i'll just ask you um you know so so what is uh so what is humanist reason um and why is it important to uh for us to reconceptualize how we think about about what we do and then and then if you could also just say something about um so why humanists um and and why reason and and right. maybe how that contrasts to you know something like scientific reason um so right. why the choice of terms as well okay well so the book um the book begins with two stories that I tell that illustrate for me the position of thinking about humanist, uh, about the, the, let's say the epistemological legitimacy of the humanities. The question of do the humanities, does humanities research, mainly what I mean here is research in history and literature, um, any historical, historically oriented field. So not necessarily philosophy, except when philosophy is historically oriented. Um, but, uh, but then obviously also sociology, anthropology, uh, I mean, when I say historically oriented, I mean, simply located in the present, right? If you're, if you're an idealist philosopher, you know, for me, you're not doing historical work, but, um, it, it, the, the, the question of, is that knowledge legitimate? Uh, that is legitimate in the sense that usable for everybody and not simply, you know, the equivalent of a kind of in-group, uh, fully institutionalized form of self-replication in an ecological situation that has no value outside of its immediate ecological situation, right? Because one of the ways you could say that, you, and you could say this certainly of of many fields, but, you know, you could say, look, the humanities is just like a group of people who figured out how to talk in ways and then convince other people that these ways are valuable and then created institutions around those ways of talking that allow a bunch of people who like doing it to uh, make a living. And uh, they effectively, whether or not they produce value to the rest of society is essentially irrelevant, right? You could imagine saying something like that. Um, and I think in some respects that the question of the value of the humanities, which is, you know, much debated, Helen Small has a book, I mean, lots of people have books on the value of the humanities, is tends to, um, for reasons I, I, I describe in the book, tends to shy away from justifications of the humanities that are explicitly epistemological um, that is, you know, you get a lot of justification in the humanities that say, well, you know, it makes people a better person or it creates empathy or it teaches people how to think critically, whatever that means. Um, so these justifications, or, you know, it's important for the creation of full and complete citizens and so on and so forth. I, you know, I don't disagree with at least some of those claims, but I don't think that they are great justifications for the scholarship of the humanities. They're frequently, almost all the time when people justify the humanities, what they're justifying is the teaching of the humanities, um, especially at the undergraduate level. And it seems to me that if you're, if that's where you go, then you're, you've already essentially lost the fight for epistemological legitimacy. 
That is, it's it's essentially over. In a world where the epistemological legitimacy of the sciences is visible to us and is taught to our children and to us as in schools um, and, and assumed in, you know, everyday life in every way, no one says... You know, you know, the value of the science is is that it makes someone more empathetic, or it teaches someone how to how to think scientifically. People say the value of the sciences is the COVID vaccine. The value of the sciences is electricity. The value of the sciences and engineering is bridges and skyscrapers and modern life and HVAC systems and 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 whatever else, right? Um, modern medicine, and so on. So you and 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 that scientific research is epistemologically valuable because it produces results that are epistemologically that have consequences that are useful right and 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 the truth of those the the the, te- the test of the epistemological value of the sciences is its applicability in the real world so that difference and that difference between the way that people tend to defend the humanities and the way that people tend to defend the sciences and you know the fact that we live in a world in which the epistemological legitimacy uh, legitimacy of the sciences is completely dominant um, as I, you know, say in the book at one point, you know, every school child in the United States at least learns that there's something called the scientific method. That is that it's a method for uh, reaching truth. And of course, you know, the people who understand best, I think the history of that method are people in our fields, in historical and literary fields, right, who understand how that method came to be in all sorts of contentious ways. Um, but in any case, no one learns a humanistic method, right? No one learns uh, that this is the way that you approach truth claims in humanistic fields. And very frequently, again, in schools, we use novels um, at the undergraduate level in order to inculcate things like an empathetic understanding of others, uh, an empathetic, uh, uh, sort of an expansion of our sense of the world and the rich and depthness of human history. Those are all good things. I want to say that that's not, I'm not against any of that. And I don't think the undergraduate curriculum could or should be altered to get rid of them. What I'm saying is that those fail to justify the legitimacy of the form of rationality that is particular to the humanities. So this gets me to part of your question, which is why reason, why rationality at all, right? Um, I understand and have read a great deal of the humanist critique of rationality and reason. And so it's not that I am taking up the term reason in a kind of like, I, I, one of the things I've tried to avoid being my whole life is one of those people on the left who shits on other people on the left all the time. Right. There's, there's, there's real money in that. And there's, 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 uh, you can really go far doing it. I, you know, my critique of the humanities and the way that humanists talk is not a centrist critique of the humanities. Um, it's not a, you've gone too far, uh, kind of critique. It's an attempt to give the very people whose side I'm on a, f- a way of talking about what they do that is rhetorically powerful, but also, in fact, more uh, full of pride and and of, um, uh, let's say, confidence and uh, sureness than the ones that I think that, that are most frequently articulated. And again, I review some of those in, in the book and I review the history of, of those defenses of the humanity. So why reason or what is reason for me that allows me to use this much maligned, very suspicious term in a positive way? Um, and you know, here I, I simply say that I take my definition of reason from, from the work of Max Weber, um, but it's a very simple definition, which is reason is a process of dialogic 
engagement in which one attempts to say things that are true for as many people as possible, let's say possibly everyone, right? That, that is, that is that, that for me, reason is when you are trying to, Weber has an, you know, Weber in his book says at some point, you know, when, when you're trying to do science, he says, was it usually science when it's reason that you're trying to say something that's true and that would be accepted as true, even by a Chinese person, he says. So we leave aside the fact that, you know, even a Chinese is a little weird and so on and so forth. But his point is, I, the, way that, the way that I would say it is that, that if you're engaged in reason, part of what you're trying to do is to say things that are true even for, let's say, an alien, right? Or some other sentient being who is very, very unlike you. So if I say, you know, the causes of the French Revolution were this, and I say this in a humanist context, in the context of humanist scholarship, I am trying to say things that everyone could agree with. Right, that I that I'm making a claim that these these are the causes. I'm sometimes not making the claim that these are the only causes, but I'm saying among you know where I'm saying I might say everyone thinks these are the causes, but there's also this other cause that we've forgotten. Or if I say the meaning of this novel is this, or people thought this novel was written or this poem was written in this circumstance, but actually it's written in some other circumstance. Or if I'm saying you know this people think that this set of social social practices or this way of being in the, in, in the world or these, this group of men at a bar, uh, in, in, you know, in Chicago who I've done an ethnographic study of people think this is, you know, they have this impression of their lives, but in fact, this is the meaning of their lives. Uh, and this is the, this is their self-understanding of their own actions. And this is the way that they produce social meaning and hierarchy, uh, and, 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 um, you know, phatic, uh, uh, engagement and so on. Uh, that, 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 that those statements are attempting to be true for everyone. Now, that said, for me, a crucial element of reason is the dialogic element. And as I say in the book, you know, one of the things that that, that means is if I'm saying something that, that for something to be reasonable, it cannot simply be that I am saying it um, without an expectation that I could be responded to in ways that would change my mind. That is, I am saying it not in a, not because, not in a way that gives me a permanent copyright on the knowledge that I have, but that the example of dialogic reason is that I can teach someone else something. They could learn that thing, and then they could think of something about that thing, either by doing research or just by being thoughtful or by putting it together with other things they know that I don't know, that would then allow them to teach me back something I didn't know about the first thing that I taught them, right? That, that reason is by definition, as I, that is by definition, as I'm defining it, a, a form of dialogic engagement with others in which one is consistently open to the possibility of revision and in which one is consistently open to the possibility of being wrong while remaining committed the whole time to saying things that are trying to say things that are true for everybody. So my claim, I think, is that that's a kind of definition of reason that, first of all, most humanists would feel more comfortable with than, you know, the model of reason that says there is only one kind of thinking and so on and so forth. Um, and also is compatible with the ways that most humanist scholars actually do their work and live their lives, which is that I don't think that any of my colleagues at Penn State or anywhere else are in fact trying to say things they think are false. I think that most people acting in good faith in our profession are trying to do exactly what I've described, which is trying to say things that are true 
and that are true not just for them, but for everyone. And doing important and difficult work to change what everyone thinks of as the truth. Again, look at, you know, the, the, the 1619 project and all of the controversy about that and the ways that that is a whole bunch of humanistic research that is attempting to marshal humanist scholarship and the power of, of writing and communication to change basic truths about the way that people think about the, you know, the history of the United States. And, you, you know, that, that to me is the model of reason that, and, and so one of the things I say over and over in the book is that what I'm trying to do is not to convince people to believe something new. I'm trying to convince people to believe something different about the thing they already do or believe, right? That is, I'm trying to re-describe what humanists do in ways that make that a doing more powerful and more recognizable to the very doers of it as something powerful and as something legitimate, you know, with the hopes that this will help us defend ourselves against the sciences uh, and against the dominance of science, um, which I think is bad for humanity and and also false and wrong. Um, but uh, uh, you know, it has you know, it doesn't really you know that's a, in some in some respects a secondary uh, a secondary goal. So that's why reason. Um. I'll, I'll stop here. I mean, I think you asked why humanists, we can get into that, but if you want to, yeah, I'll just give, give you some room. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, so I, yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, so you spend, you spend um, a good, a good deal of the kind of the, the middle parts of the book. Um, and and I, I don't want to mischaracterize this, so please correct me if, if I am, but, um, tracing, tracing a lineage of, of humanist reason or, or of, um, you know, what, what you refer to as humanist, uh, meta discourse. Um, so if you could say something about, you know, what, what we should, should understand about, about these lineages, what's, what's important for us to, to understand about where they came from. Um, and also if you could, you know, maybe, maybe kind of, um, I'm going to flesh out some of the the key terms that that you outlined. So, um, uh, ideographism, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, and singularity. Um, yeah. Right. So, okay. So, the first two thirds of the book is a historical and philosophical description of how humanists came to define themselves and defend themselves and defend their epistemological legitimacy in certain ways. And the argument I'm making is that basically the language in which humanists, with which humanists mostly defend themselves, and there are lots of examples of this language in the book, develops at a certain moment in the German, German university in the late, mid to late 1800s, uh, um, as partly as a result of a response to not only the rise, of course, of the natural sciences, but specifically the rise of the social sciences, which really threaten the room that had been left to, you know, what wasn't at that time called the humanities, uh, but what, what essentially what was left of philosophy or the general philosophical fields um, that had been left over when essentially over the sort of 1700s, the field of the realm of matter and to some lesser extent biology was ceded to the natural philosophers, aka the scientists, that is the people who became scientists, became known as scientists. 
And, and so, you know, if you think, okay, well, look, the realm of matter is seated in this one direction, but we still have the realm of the social left over for sort of the realm of the, of, of the realm of philosophy more generally, right? Philosophy here being a huge umbrella term covering everything that we would now think of as, as part of the modern humanities. Then the rise of the social sciences and specifically the rise of, of quantitatively oriented statistical social sciences coupled with a more general spirit of positivism, right, leads to people saying, look, we're going to figure out, first of all, we're going to use, you know, we're going to use stats to figure out the way that the social really works. And we're going to use stats and we're going to use historical work to figure out the laws of history, such and the laws of the social, such that basically we can uh, determine and organize the social for the greater good of, of humankind, first of all, and such that, and and, and we're also going to do this because thanks to biology and and sort of neuropsychology, we're also going to do this with the mind. So at that point, what's left for you know, and and, and economics is you know, so the, this is the rise of all of the major. I mean, sociology, economics, political science, statistics, as fields, all emerge around this time, right? What's left at that point is history. And, you know, literature is not studied in the university yet, right, in, in quite the same way. But so so the the people who'd been, you know, if you imagine like you're, you're watching this realm or this field of play that, that had been assigned to you being eaten away and having its epistemological legitimacy questioned, because basically if we can figure out, I mean, if we can figure out, um, you know, the way the mind works, then we can skip all of the humanistic side of psychology, but also, you know, uh, we can, we can basically fix all, we can treat minds like bodies, which is to say we can treat bodies like machines. Um, uh, I'm just reminded of that great Unsen Robinbach book, the human motor, uh, in any case, so we, we can do all this stuff. I mean, you know, and, and, and the, the humanists at the time, basically, um, th this is the moment my argument is that this is the crucial moment in the formation of the modern humanities as they as they exist post 1870 or so within the modern university in the west and then exported to the rest of the world that is this is this is the time or this is the moment when these disciplines are created define themselves and bind themselves to an epistemological defense of 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 their practices that is i think in the long run incredibly damaging but in any case that's where it happens and, um, you know, so, so the, the first third of the book is a history of that. The second third of the book is a real, um, philosophical deep dive into, um, I think w one of the key kind of, um, either conscious or unconscious mental sort of structures that defines that, uh, and justifies the, the, the defense of the humanities as it appears, uh, which is, which is, which appears in Kant. And so it's a whole lot, very long, close reading of Kant, very kind of dense and maybe not for everyone. Um, and then the third book, the third part of the book comes out of those first two parts and says, okay, like now we understand what the problem is. What happens if we try to come up with a kind of solution uh, or, uh, and again, it, if, if the, it's, it's a descriptive problem. So my, my claim is that the humanities not only have a bad description of themselves, that is a, a meta discourse that is false in the sense that it describes poorly what humanist scholarship actually does and how it works in the world, but also that is bad for the humanities in the sense that it's rhetorically 
not powerful, that it doesn't have a, a great deal of social impact, that it puts you on the defensive in, uh, you know, in, in all kinds of messaging situations and so on. So, you know, the argument over and over is that is that as it exists and as it's articulated, humanist discourse is humanist discourse is effectively both false and unhelpful. And then the third part of the book is an attempt to describe, re-describe humanist scholarship um, in ways that are true and helpful. Yeah. So if I can, um, so if I can just kind of um, jump in and, and kind of ask you to, to build on that a little bit. Um, so in, in the third part, you outline um, what you call the, the articles of reason um, uh, and also how humanists ought to think. Um, so I was just wondering if you could, you know, explain a little bit about that um, to our listeners. Um, so, so, how should we how should we think um about about what we do what what should humanists think about what what they do and and how should um you know how can this or or should this be be articulated in in kind of a, a healthier way um if if we might okay. describe so, it that way yeah i mean i'm trying to describe some basic principles so the articles of reason there's i think there's nine of them some of them are very long but i mean they're they're each kind of encapsulated by a pithy phrase and then, and then explained at you know at length. Um, it, each article is basically just a statement that I think corresponds to what most humanists, if not all humanists, believe. And I'll give you an example of one in a minute. But before I get there, I want to say that they're underlying the 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 articles are two principles that get articulated somewhere in that in that in that piece. But maybe here it's useful to say them up front. The first is that the reason humanists believe the things that I'm about to describe. Well, let me tell you one. So humanists believe that events, processes, and objects, and I use events to kind of talk to nod to history, processes to nod to studies of the social, and objects to nod to literature and art, you know, and the study of of artifacts. Um, So events, processes, and objects are largely but not entirely determined by the contexts in which they appear. Okay? This seems to me completely uncontroversial, although it's actually an incredibly interesting thing to believe. We do believe it, right? And, and again, it's new relatively uh, as an idea. It's probably, you know, it's, it's basically the idea of historicism. Um, and, and the key for me is, is that we neither believe, if you look at what humanists say and do, we neither believe that objects are entirely determined by their context, nor do we believe that they're entirely free from their context, right? We believe that they're mostly, if not entirely determined by their context, but that every context contains objects events or processes that are not fully determined by that context and whose um, activity can escape that context in some way. Okay. Um, and, and escape it, you know, it, not necessarily in revolutionary ways, but can escape it. So one of the things that I want to say about that belief is that that belief is an evidence-based belief. Why do I believe that? I believe that because I have seen and studied and worked on lots of historical evidence that suggests to me that this is true. That is, I, I, so I don't believe it because I'm a Leninist or I don't believe it because I think that that's a good way to think or that's a moral way to think about humanity or because a, that way of thinking is compatible with freedom. I think about it as a 
uh, I think about it. I think it, I think that it's true because uh, you know I've read a bunch of historical scholarship, and it's it's been proven to me over and over, and I can see it in action in all kinds of ways, right? Um, I, you know, an example I use end up using over and over in the book, and I think it's because it's one of my go tos. But you know, think about gender, right? On the one hand, we can see how easy it is to say that there are aspects of gender that are entirely determined. Uh, by their social context. And at the same time, in every social context, we will find uh, forms of gender that escape what you might think of, uh, at least partially, the the dominant structures or the, or the sort of fully determining structures. Um, and, you know, why are things able to escape those structures or what is the, what is the, if I want to theorize the nature of that escape, the nature of that escape is is in some sense the nature of historical change. Right. If you have a context that's fully determined, then nothing changes. But since things change, we know that it can't be fully determined. Since it's not fully determined, but then, but we see very clearly how it's partially determined. So fine. Okay. Good. Right, we all understand that. So that's a basic principle. And there's whatever. There's more. But the other thing to understand. So first of all, is that that this. Why do I believe this? It's because it is. Um, it is an evidence-based um, proposition. Right. That is, that is, I, I believe this on the basis of historical evidence. Secondly, so that, that's, that's underlying theme number one. The underlying theme number two is that one of the reasons that humanist scholarship is complicated and struggles with questions of epistemological legitimacy is because the objects of humanist scholarship are much more complicated in general than the objects of scientific scholarship. And here, uh, my the easiest illustration possible is the difference between discovering a vaccine for the coronavirus and the actuality of getting people to take the vaccine for that virus, right? Or to distribute that vaccine in fair ways and reasonable ways, right? the 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 vaccine itself is a ma- the production of the vaccine itself is a matter of scientific epistemology incredibly successful the failure to distribute the vaccine in such a way as to avoid for instance variants uh and and the rise of new variants the failure to distribute that vaccine to convince people to take that vaccine and uh is a matter of you know what it's a matter of of sociology. It's a matter of rhetoric. It's a matter of politics. It's a matter of economics. It's a matter of the flow of social and global power. All of these things are infinitely more complicated, especially in their interactions with each other, than in fact, the very, very, very complicated, admittedly, production of an mRNA virus or a vaccine rather. Right. But it turns out that one of them can be done in a year and the other one may not be able to be done. And if we try to understand why, that is, if you say, again, if you think one of the things we think is, okay, well, look, science and humanities try to do things. That's fine. So, but, but also try, science and humanities try to explain why things happen. So why didn't the, why doesn't a given vaccine work? We made it, you know, why is Johnson and Johnson less effective than Moderna? We can, un, uh, that's very easy to understand. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not super easy, but it's easy if we say, why aren't people taking their vaccines, right? Why aren't people distributing the vaccines globally? To really understand that, 
to real I mean to really get at the psychology of it, the social the social politics of it, why the you know the refusal to, to do vaccine take up is different in different countries and for different types of people, all that stuff is incredibly rich and complicated. So when you know when the human humanities are made to feel like they're epistemological work or their scholarly work is ineffective or valueless, it's frequently because, in fact, the conclusions that we are able to draw are limited, but they're limited not because we're stupid or lazy. They're limited because the stuff we're studying is incredibly hard incredibly complicated and bound together. Again, I mean, think about the difference between the list of Ikea instructions and a poem, right? We're, we're studying poems and science is, again, and with all due respect to our colleagues in science, when one studies things without minds, one simply has much less of a challenge than when one studies things with minds. It, it, and that's just the way it is. And, and so it, you know, the, the, to when, you know, when you look at these articles of faith or of reason that I've, you know, and obviously I'm choosing it because of articles of faith, but when, when you choose, when you look at these articles of reason, they're often, n- none of them say things like all events are determined by their context. They're all things like events are mostly, but not entirely determined by their context, because in fact, that seems to be the way things work, right? That, that um, when you describe these 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 the ways that we think, they tend to be, you know, it's kind of a dumb word, but they tend to be nuanced or or hedged. But that hedging is not again a sign of of of, of weakness. It is a sign of evidence based knowledge that comes from our analysis of the historical and sociological and aesthetic record. So, okay. I mean, that, that essentially gives you a, gives you a sense. Um, and again, you know, there, there are some interesting implications for me for all of this. Um, like one of the implications that, that I draw from the, the claim that things are determined by their context, uh, which is an important one. I think, again, if you're trying to learn how to think about, um, you know, how to think about, uh, uh, how to do humanist scholarship is that if things are determined by their context, part of the context of any object is not just the things that did happen, but also the things that could have happened, but didn't. Right. So, so that, you know, part of how we understand the actuality of a novel or a poem is to, is to imagine the novels that it wasn't the novels that it could have been, but wasn't. Um, and, and, and that's, that's as true for a novel by a single author as for, you know, if you say, why is George Eliot interesting or why is, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Xu Bing, the, the, you know, the Chinese artist interesting part of what your understanding of what they're doing in the social is to understand what they're not doing. And some of what they're not doing is being done by other artists, but some of what they're not doing is, is not being done by anyone. And so part of what that means is that the field of humanist scholarship, and this is true for historical events, obviously counterfactuals are included very much in the, in the production of history, right? So we, we, we understand the result of a, you know, a battle or a social process um, very, very clearly as the, partly the product of a series of decisions not taken or not made by various kinds of people, or in fact, by, you know, uh, environmental structures that people were unaware of, right? You think about the, you know, the, the, the poor folks on Easter Island, 
basically, you know, destroying their environment in ways that they couldn't fully grasp. Um, these factors are in our work. It's not just that they're imaginary, right? And therefore somehow fantastical. It's that sort of determining the specific nature of the relevant imaginary and or fantastical structures is uh, is part of the actuality of a given object or event right that is the, that the actuality the meaning the value the sort of impact the force um, of a set of social processes or of an aesthetic object is partly determined in actuality by the things that they are not which means, right, and again, this is a kind of this is where it gets very theoretical. Which means, right, that our reality, what uh, the total reality of any given moment that we're obliged to study, is a reality composed of both things that are and things that are not, right? And that's the field of the humanities. And again, my argument would be, th- it's not that I'm describing what the field of the humanities should be. What I'm trying to describe is the way it actually already is if you read any given work of historical scholarship that essentially in many cases unconsciously this is the way that humanists think and work and that what has happened is we've failed to see and legitimize and fight for um, the legitimacy of the ways that we're actually thinking and working Mm. yeah yeah that's great Um, I mean so so I guess I just want to um, to to ask you, um, you know, with all of that in mind, um, what uh, can, I was, you know, can you talk about um, your some of your recommendations um, in terms of um, maybe not how how we should think about it or conceptualize it, but but in in the fourth chapter, um, you you have. You know a good deal of of suggestions um, about about uh, how to, uh, for instance, foregrounding our our best topics and ideas, putting them them first, um, and you know not not burying burying them um, in our kind of course outlines and descriptions and 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 those types of things. So so can you talk about? Um, your yeah. what might some of your recommendations be uh, and what we should be should be doing um, in terms of uh, re- possibly you know restructuring or, or re reorienting or, or just just foregrounding um, some of those some, some of our best ideas um, and and also if if I could just say um, are there any schools or, or any or any places or departments that that you can think of that that might be doing something something well that something that that you like that you think is is effective in terms of in terms of this right okay so, well so i mean I, you know i it is not it is not necessarily the case that the argument of the first three chapters leads inexorably to changes in the humanities as they are currently institutionalized in the university. So I, I want to say that you can accept the argument of the first three chapters and say, this is great. This is really going to help. It's really, um, these are, you know, you can make and take these arguments in ways that simply allow you to focus on scholarship and on the way that you sort of articulate your scholarship and maybe teach, you know, graduate students um, and maybe even undergraduates. I mean, some of these ideas are ideas I certainly teach to undergrads. Um, 
That said, you know, the fourth section then says, okay, well, look, if all of this is true, and given what we know about the current state of humanities education in the university, is there anything that this stuff suggests about the ways we might change uh, how we're thinking about things? So um, here, you know, I, I, I've been getting more and more blunt about this, I guess. So I'll just be very, very blunt. I think that the undergraduate majors in the humanities are currently not functional and should be radically changed. Um, I, I think that um, not only, be, I mean, I, w- I, w- I didn't think that 20 years ago, and that's because 20 years ago, the undergraduate majors in the humanities might have you know, could have probably still used some, like, you know, some improvement. But 20 years ago, the undergraduate major in the humanities had not yet gone through the nearly, you know, 30 to 40% collapse uh, in the United States that they've gone through uh, in the last 10 years, 12 years. So in the last 12 years, uh, since the 2008 financial crisis, the number of humanities majors in the United States has dropped, let's say, um, it depends on the university and and so on, but uh, in, in about thirty percent across all majors, um, and you know that that languages, the literatures, um, and uh, history and philosophy um, is not immune at all. Surprisingly, um, this is also true in other countries when I've seen data. So uh, this is uh, you know a disaster for us, for scholars, for people who care about our students, uh, for people who believe, as I do, that the humanities do have a value that's beyond the scholarly, that that is that, you know, who think that the value of humanities is, in fact, to change the way people think about others and so on. That is that, you know, I don't disagree with some of those those things. I just didn't write a book about them. Um, and, and so, you know, the question for me or the number one question for me right now, which is a very practical question, is how do we get those majors back? Because if we don't get the majors back, what's going to happen is that our departments are going to be collapsed into one another and they're going to be, uh, and again, that's not a disaster for me in and of itself. That is, you can imagine a a set of departments that are pushed together in ways that would be empowering. But in, in general, when departments get pushed together, it's it's actually not empowering, it's debilitating. And um, what then happens also is that those departments become essentially service units for the general education program of the rest of the university. And I know this hits home for you, Brian, given your news um, this, this week. So, um, you know, the, the question would be, like to me, first of all, I'll just say like, if we are losing 20 to 30% of our majors, and I've said this elsewhere, but it's not our fault. That is, there's nothing, it, it, you know, mainly, I think the main, the major cause of this, this, this loss is, is the, um, the politicization of education that's been going on for 40 or 50 years. I basically still think we're fighting 68. Um, and, and I think that, that, you know, you can read the history of, of, of conservative parties relationship to humanistic education since 68 as an attempt to starve uh, and defund uh, the parts of the university that uh, they perceived as pushing uh, um, the country to the left on social issues. Um, so, you know, that's, that's part of it. But, um, you know, I, I think th- that said, Um, I think that, you know, unless we are able to get the majors back or the student numbers back, 
we're simply doomed to a future that looks a lot like the future of the classics, a perfectly vibrant but very, very small field whose relevance uh, to the rest of you know, the academy and, and to society is, is not in question simply because everyone agrees that it's very, it's not very relevant at all. Um, so, you know, that, I don't want that future for us because I think that produces a, a worse world and a worse society. So for me, part of it is to say that I think that one of the things that we could do, and again, I, I say this without saying like where we went wrong or what happened. I do. I mean, I, I can look back and blame some people for some stuff. Okay. So I mean, I, I get some sense that of, of places where, you know, humanists went wrong, uh, but I would say that what is, what is really wrong right now with the humanities institutionally is that our undergraduate majors correspond much too closely to our graduate disciplines and that what that our undergraduate majors do not seem interesting or relevant to the group of people who for whom they are supposed to be interesting and relevant and that's our problem it's not their problem we can complain about students all we want but in fact it's our problem and our problem is basically how do we teach students what we know and frame what we know in ways that are appealing to students. So I'll give you a, for instance, I was doing some curricular consultation at a Presbyterian college and uh, one of our colleagues there uh, had a course on Milton that he loved teaching and that doesn't enroll any students anymore. And so, you know, he's, he only he used to get, you know, 40 students because everyone heard of Milton and now he doesn't, he only gets two or three. And so then he can't teach the class. So, and this is a relatively, uh, you know, uh, a Presbyterian college that's that's seriously Presbyterian, not a Presbyterian college that, you know, was Presbyterian 100 years ago and is now basically secular. And so I said, well, you know, look, I think, what if you taught a class called, um, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? And in such a class, you could, of course, teach a lot of Milton. You couldn't teach all Milton. That would be misleading. But you could teach a bunch of Milton. Because the, the thing that's powerful, right, about about your teaching is not, you know, what, what, what does the student value the most when they walk away from the Milton class? It isn't like, oh, now I really know who Milton was. So I'll be like able to answer trivia questions about that. It's, you know, I was moved. I was engaged. I thought about important things. I saw some of the beauty and power of language. I thought more deeply about the nature of religious belonging. I understand some things historically about what it means uh, to have written and so on and thought in these ways. So if you think about, you know, taking those things that a student who walks away from your class and the things that they're going to remember in 20 years, and instead of calling your class something that isn't the thing they're going to remember, whether that is Victorian literature or military history or, you know, the, ba you know, the, like, uh, you know, um, I don't know what, uh, the, uh, you, know, you know, 20th century ethics calling your class, naming your class after the things that students really will hear uh, and will care about when they're gone, I think that would go a long way to um, remaking uh, the curriculum. And I think honestly remaking the major. So I have a proposal in the book and it's a proposal that really does away in some respects with the old humanities majors while trying to retain the best of what we know. Um, 
that involves, you know, really reorganizing our majors around topics like social justice or, um, you know, the, the individual and the, and the, and the, and, and, you know, the individual in society or, um, you know, I, again, like, I, you know, imagine not, not a major. I mean, so I'm not talking about 12 courses necessarily or 10 courses, whatever major is, wherever you are, but, but units of four courses, uh, that would, you know, that would essentially be oriented around topics that were engaging or interesting. Um, you know, there are examples of this at the level of courses. I mean, so, you know, there's a very famous course at Harvard called the good life, um, uh, that enrolls huge, huge people. I mean, thinking about Michael Sand, uh, the, the I think I don't know what his name is, Sandel, I think, but the guy who taught the justice course uh, at, at Harvard that was for many years on PBS. Um, my a friend of mine and I teach a course here called Being in the Universe that enrolls hugely. That's a combination of astronomy and religious history and philosophy and uh, literature. Um, and is, you know, is a great fun course. That's basically about, again, like, you know, a whole third of the course is devoted to, to, to like the con the physical, the physical reasons why time moves forward and the consequences both to the, the solar system of the fact that time moves forward, which is that eventually everything is going to be just a cold, uh, uh, nothingness, but also the consequences to human life of the fact that time moves forward. And, you know, so, so we both talk about, Again, the physics of the universe at a large scale, but also, for instance, the psychology of time as we experience it as living beings on a planet. Um, you know, we, we have a whole, there's actually a whole section in that, in that section on time on Rawls and, and on sort of uh, social contract theory and critiques of Rawls, of course. And the reason that comes up is because one of the things that, that the problem of time creates is the problem of scarcity. So we say, look, you know, one of the consequences of time is that things are scarce. And if things are scarce, that's what gives you the beginning of you know, economics. And so, you know, what is political science in some sense? Political science is, is, is or political philosophy is a method for thinking about and determining how to live with each other in conditions of scarcity. Um, and scarcity obviously creates hierarchy in, uh, of all kinds. So, you know, we get the students from thinking about why is time moving forward? What is What are the physical consequences of time moving forward? all the way to like, how do we live together in a just society? And we think of those as really combined in this being in the universe course. So things like that to me are powerful. And again, I can think of, you know, the thing that I know and the thing that's frustrating for me, if you ask for examples, is that what it would take is it would take a whole college worth of faculty trying to reorganize themselves in ways that would um, remap essentially the things that matter to them onto new fields uh, and onto new course titles in ways that would be exciting and relevant for undergrads. Um, and I just do not know of anywhere that that's happening at the scale that we're talking about, um, unfortunately. And I will say that, you know, one of the very frustrating things is that in my experience, the biggest obstacle to this kind of change are the faculty. Um, and partly that's understandable because of course, you know, in the humanities in the last 40 years, if a dean comes and says, let's all like, you know, make new departments, that's historically always been a sign that the humanities are about to get screwed. Um, you know, lose faculty, lose job security, lose access to research money and so on and so forth. So it's not an irrational response, but, um, you know, I really do feel like, you know, I don't know. There's a, there's a Stephen King story where a man who is 
flying a small plane load of cocaine uh, somewhere, crash lands on a deserted island. And um, over the course of the story, um, event is starving and eventually starts using the cocaine to medicate himself so that he can cut off parts of his body and eat them. And uh, I sometimes think of the modern humanities as, and modern humanist faculty as a little bit like that guy, um, which is, you know, which is to say that the decision they force themselves into is over and over. What do we cut or what do we get rid of? How much can we live without in order to survive so that, you know, if somehow a rescue arrives, um, we will, we will be able to thrive once again. Um, whereas, you know, I guess if I were that guy, I would have just tried swimming. Um, you know, because I, 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 and this is really what the book is about, but also what my ideas about what humanists need to do in the university are about, which is I would rather go down fighting in a proactive way for the things I believe in and trying to really um, be, take risks and be brave in relation to their production of the curriculum than I would um, to, to, to suffer this very slow and, and, and painful uh, death, which is a, a death or, or not even a death, but a form of, of in, inward shrinking. And be, partly because, it, it, you know, the people who are going to suffer from the decline of the humanities or the collapse of the humanities are not only or not mainly the tenure line faculty who are currently employed, who will, you know, probably have jobs until the end. But there are graduate students, there are future people who don't exist, who won't be able to get jobs in these fields, even though these, you know, jobs are important and, and good and, and, and be able to live lives that are, you know, associated with these ideas. And of course, there are all the undergraduates who won't take courses and won't be able to take courses in, uh, in these fields. And so, you know, I, I just, um, for me, you know, a revamped and remade humanities is one that retains all of what we know is so valuable about it, but um, loses only, you know, the loss is really, as, as I see it, would only be the undergraduate majors as they currently exist. I don't think there are, lo- there are other huge losses. I mean, I think there are losses of there's discomfort. You know, I, I had to learn a lot of new things to teach this being in the universe class with my colleague. I'm, you know, I'm essentially a 20th century literature scholar by training. So I think there are real costs in terms of the effort we have to put into our to our teaching, but I I don't think those costs are losses. I think they're essentially gains. That is, I feel enriched and empowered by what I've had to learn, uh, not diminished by it. Even though, of course, it was more work at a certain moment. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know I think that this is you know such such an important and necessary discussion um, to be having, and you know as you know, um, yeah, it does. It does hit uh, a little bit close to home <laughs> at at the moment, but um, yeah, thank you, thank you so much um for this really really uh important and and articulate work and and all of these suggestions and and I'm really really happy that that we had the opportunity to do this and um you know just 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 talk about the, this book in, in in more detail um so I'm I'm just wondering um if you would mind just just saying something um about you know possibly about uh anything that that you're working on now if if you uh if if you have um you know like 
some some projects that that you're working on and and kind of like you know what's what's next for you i guess <laughs> okay well so i mean part of what i want to say with a shout out to everyone who's surviving covid is i have not done nearly as much writing over the last year as i wanted to or had planned to um and so you know i i do have things i'm going to work on i'm going to talk about them but i i i i want to be i i want to recognize you know, to anyone who's listening to this, who feels, you know, who feels like it's been a hard year, it's been a hard year and, or it's been a hard two years. And, and, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I, so I want to be gentle with myself and I don't want to also pretend to you that I'm just like going ahead like gangbusters because I, I, I know if I heard someone say that, that would make me feel bad. So I have two ideas, both of which are coming along, but mainly, um, Again, you know, I, I would have, one of them I thought I would be done with by now, and I'm not even like 10 pages in. Um, and that one is uh, a book on video games. It's called 50 Ways to Think About Video Games. It's based on a class that I teach at Penn State called Introduction to Video Game Culture. But it's really a book that's actually about, um, it, so it uses video games as an example, but it's a book that's about um how to think about cultural artifacts. It's kind of more for a popular undergrad kind of audience. Um, and it's a basic lesson in like, it's a series of lessons, 50 lessons, let's say, in you know how to approach uh, artifacts, how to see meaning in them, how to, how to recognize what's complicated and interesting about them. Some, some of the lessons are, you know, theoretical lessons, like, you know, what's the distinction between, um, you know, what Aristotle called primary and secondary effects of an artifact. Some of the lessons are in like genre theory or auteur theory. Some of the lessons are in, you know, like the ways that in, in uh, this is very easy to show with video games, the way that, you know, technological or economic forces shape the development of uh, artifacts. Um, the metaphor, you know, of, of the book, the, fun, the beginning metaphor of the book is, is, you know, I invite the reader to imagine finding a, a, a vase, an, an Etruscan vase. And I sort of say, you know, what can you ask? What kinds of questions can you ask an artifact like this? You know, where were you made? What are you made of? Where did you come from? Who used you? Why did they use you this way? Were you used by pr some people and not others? That is, you know, sort of suggesting to the reader the ways an artifact can be a kind of aperture uh, through which you can catch a glimpse of an entire civilization. Um, and then, you know, the, the, at the end of that first section, I say for the rest of the game, video games are our Etruscan vase and we'll move on from there. So that's that's project one and project two, which is a scholarly or more scholarly project, is a project that I'm calling very, very in very big way, uh, the, end, the end of aesthetic history and the future of literary studies. And it's partly a project about, I can actually talk about it for a long time, but I won't, but I'll say that it begins with me trying to reckon with what I now perceive to be the historical uniqueness of the time period that most of us lived through or are um, symbiotically connected to, which is the time period between, let's say, 1850 and 1970, in which art, uh, undergoes a tremendous series of changes um, related to, and by art, I mean all art, music, sculpture, painting, photography, literature, uh, film, um, related to formalism. 
And part of what I, I've come to see or what I've come to believe is that that, that period was is, is historically unique. That is that nothing like that has ever happened before. And my guess is probably won't ever happen again. And, 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 you know, which is to some extent counterintuitive or it's not, but I think that recognizing its, its uniqueness allows us both to diminish its impact on the way that we think about human aesthetic history more broadly, but also to recognize how, how it distorted our theories of aesthetic history, aesthetic production, um, because we were born into it and our teachers were born into it. And so you know, part of what the project is about is, is a kind of critique uh, and reimagining of aesthetic history um, in, which, in which modernism, you know, let's, is that, which is one name for this 1850 to 1970 thing, um, it is, is relegated to a very, very small place in a much longer global history of the aesthetic. Um, and basically trying to reckon with the consequences of, of that relegation, um, for the way that we think about, you know, we think about art more generally in the terms that we use to think about art, the frameworks we use to think about art, um, and so on. Yeah. Those, so that's like, yeah new crazy yeah i mean i'm you know just information my my goal is to get to the next modernist studies association basically i want to start giving you know giving conference talks on this so i can get feedback and, and mm. push back and 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 use it to frame ideas but that probably that's probably like five to seven years out it's just really the beginnings of the idea mm. yeah those both sound you know really really interesting and uh, you know as always i'm i'm really looking forward to uh to reading them um yeah so uh, thank you so much um for joining us it's been it's been you know really a pleasure talking to you um thanks so much yeah thank you brian this has been great and thanks so much for taking the time and i, I really appreciate it and thanks to everyone listening out there um I know there are probably other things to do in life. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and, and for you too, Brian, um, anyway, thank you so much. I'll, um, it's, it's been, it's been really a pleasure. Of course. Yeah. Thanks again.